Welcome back to the Dersh Show. Missed you. Always miss when we have a few days um, off the podcast. And of course, in a few days, the world keeps spinning and spinning and spinning. Um, fear of nuclear uh, confrontation, fear of massive killings of civilians. Not a lot seems to be happening. The only winner are China and CNN um, and other media that are making a fortune, a fortune of people watching day to day. And I remember the other day, CNN had the unbelievable chutzpah to talk about other people making contributions to uh, Ukrainian uh, civilians. CNN ought to be pouring an enormous amount of their profits into um, Ukrainian relief uh, along with other media giants who are making much more money than they're used to making because people are just watching, watching as, as they should. And we'll take some questions on Ukraine. I've got a lot of questions, um, some of which surprisingly were anti-Ukrainian and, and pro-Russian, but nothing gets censored on the Der Show. But today I, I want to deal with a subject that's very, very difficult to deal with. Uh, one of these hot button, hot button radioactive issues that people try to stay away from. And that is the issue of the relationship between race, ethnicity, religion, um, uh, gender, and crime. And um, it's you know been a, an issue that's been under the radar, but obviously in the mind of many people for many, uh, many years. When, when I taught criminal law at Harvard, I went out of my way always to focus on controversial issues that people don't get in other classrooms. And so I did talk about uh, race and crime. Obviously, when I dealt with the death penalty, I had to deal with race and crime because race was uh, a significant factor. I helped write some of the early briefs and make some of the early arguments. I wrote a leading argument on the unconstitutionality of the death penalty along with my mentor, Arthur Goldberg, in which we focused on racial disparities. Not only back in the day did uh, black defendants get the death penalty far more often than white defendants, but even more significantly, people who killed white people got the death penalty and people who killed black people didn't get the death penalty. So. There were racial disparities on, on both the victim and the perpetrator uh, end of the, of the spectrum. And uh, uh, you know, race is just too important to ignore. A lot of my colleagues in teaching criminal law deliberately stayed away from it because from a teacher's point of view, it's a no-win situation. Any position they take is going to be controversial and going to get some people to dislike them. But my philosophy has always been a quote attributed um, to Confucius, in fact, many, many, many centuries ago, in which he said the only bad question is the one that not asked or the one that can't be asked. And so I believe any question uh, can be asked. Uh, the issue of race and crime goes back forever. I'm, one of my favorite books uh, is, uh, it's the 19, I'm sorry, the 1886 Professional Criminals of America. And it's a list and picture of the most prominent criminals in America, uh, listed listed by crimes and um, and uh, you know bank burglars, bank sneak thieves, forgers, hotel and boarding house thieves, sneak and house thieves, store and safe burglars, shoplifters, receivers of stolen goods, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and of course more serious criminals. Um, and uh, what what's so interesting 
is that back in, in 1886, when we saw a surge in immigration, immigration uh, of Jews from Eastern Europe, of uh, Italians from Southern Europe, of uh, Irish people from Northern Europe, uh, this book uh, was filled with Jewish criminals, Irish criminals, Italian criminals, uh, very, 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 very few um, African-American uh, criminals. Um, the reason there were so many uh, criminals among those ethnic groups is many of the ethnic groups sent their men there first to try to establish a home, make a living, and then send for their women and children. And the one thing you can be sure of, if you send men alone anywhere, there's going to be a high level of criminality. And so you had a high level of criminality uh, among uh, groups uh, like that. The point I'm making is that no serious social scientist will ever tell you that there is a genetic or inherent um, um, aspect of, uh, of criminal behavior based on genes or, or race alone. It's obviously based on circumstances, based on poverty, based on occupation, based on a range of other factors. And uh, today, obviously, the focus is on, on racial, on racial uh, differences. Uh, we know two things that seem to be facts. And I want to put these mostly in the form of questions for you, and I'd like you to address them. Um, does anybody dispute the fact that seems to be very well established that all things being equal, and very hard to keep all things equal, you're more likely to be arrested, stopped, interrogated if you're black than if you're white. If you have uh, 100 people walking down a similar street or driving down a similar highway, same rate of speed, same type of dress, etc., uh, a black person is more likely to be accosted by the police and arrested. I think that's a fact, and if you don't, I'd like to, to hear that. But the thing that complicates matters is that it also seems true that at least today, it may not have been true in 1886, and hopefully it won't be true in 2086 or maybe even 2026, that for certain kinds of crimes, um, there are racial disparities uh, that uh, African-Americans seem to commit more crimes of a certain type um, than uh, people of different uh, races. If, if you don't think that's true, uh, let, let, let me know. Um, and the, the two statistics I just mentioned make it difficult to evaluate either one, because if in fact blacks are arrested more often, all things being equal than white, maybe they aren't committing more crimes. But if they do commit more crimes, maybe they aren't being arrested uh, more frequently. It's very hard to hold constant these factors. And so trying to do any kind of an honest statistical analysis of race and crime is always going to be uh, daunting. But what I wanted to talk about today is something a little bit different, related to be sure. That is how the media deals with race and crime. And uh, the program today was stimulated by two articles in the New York Times following one day after the other. There were two serious crimes that were reported by the New York Times, uh, again, one following the other. Some of you may remember this. So one is, they're both still ongoing in some ways. One was a stabbing of several people at the Museum of Modern Art. I, I took that very seriously, obviously, because I live near the Museum of Modern Art. We're members of the Museum of Modern Art. I'm a collector of modern art. And I love the Museum of Modern Art. And I could have been there. In fact, uh, one of my son's best friend's daughters was there. 
and managed to kick the assailant and, 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 and escape. So that came pretty darn close to home. Uh, the other one did not come as close to home. It's uh, a man who was apparently suspected of shooting um, a handful or more of homeless people, some in Washington, D.C., and some in New York. But the point I want to make, and I want to put this in the form of a question, the fact is this. The New York Times, when it reported the MoMA, the Museum of Modern Art Stabbing, identified the assailant as a white man. What it said was that the person at the museum identified him as a white man, but the New York Times published the identification as a white man. The crime involving the homeless people, they did not, at least to my knowledge. I read the articles very carefully. Maybe in a later edition they did, so I'm not going to be definitive about it, but the edition that I read did not identify the race of the assailant of the um, homeless people. But I know what the race is. He was black. How do I know what the race is? Because there's a kind of grainy picture that CNN and others and the New York Times uh, put forward. And if you, if you uh, il enlarge the picture and you look close, it seems obvious that uh, the alleged assailant, the accused assailant, is, uh, is black. So let, let's take this as a hypothetical at the moment. I think the facts bear it out, but let's take it as a hypothetical. Let's assume the New York Times has a policy. I don't know whether they do or not, but let's assume they have a policy of identifying a white person if he is suspected criminal, but not identifying as a black person, uh, a person who is uh, a suspected uh, criminal. Now, you know, they may argue, no, that's not our policy. We identify the person as white because the person who was there identified him as white, and they also said he was wearing a certain kind of shirt in order to be able to have him captured. So it was relevant. And maybe it wasn't relevant in the homeless killing, but why wasn't it relevant? Um, he was also a fugitive. And there were efforts to identify him, but they didn't identify him by race. But let's assume, hypothetically, that the New York Times and other media have a policy of not identifying a black alleged assailant or accused person based on race, but identifying uh, a white person uh, based on race. I'm not suggesting, by the way, that the Times uh, would identify a white person by a subgroup, say a Jewish white person, an Irish white person, an Italian white person, etc. Or I don't know what their policy would be if the person were Asian or Latino or anything else that were identifiable in, in some way. The question that I want to pose to you is, should um, there be uh, one policy, and that is either race is identified or isn't identified? Obviously, it should always be identified if it's highly relevant to catching uh, an escape perpetrator. But if it's not, um, uh, should there be the same policy without regard to whether the person is black or white? Or should there be a different policy? Should, is the Times, would the Times be correct if it said, look, it's terrible. Too many people stereotype uh, African-American people and relate them to crime. It's a terrible thing. We shouldn't do it. And we're not going to participate in that. We're not going to contribute to that. But people don't identify white people with this kind of crime, crime of violence, although obviously white people commit them more frequently than the black people in terms I don't mean proportionally more frequently, but numerically more proportionally, but more 
white people commit murders than black people, even if it's true that more black people as a percentage of the population commit murders. And again, we don't know the statistics and how true they are. I'm giving you just the basic outlines for a hypothetical. Would it make any sense for a uh, media company, a newspaper, whatever, to adopt uh, a kind of, you can call it an affirmative action um, policy uh, with regard to race and crime, saying, yeah, we will report and identify people as white uh, because people don't stereotype in that way, but we're not going to report uh, a person's race if they're black unless it's highly relevant. Um, for example, if it's a, a racial crime of some kind, of course, you would have to report it. And, and, and that's the question. And, 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 and the question is, you know, we tiptoe around race. We do. Look, when I was growing up, it was interesting that people in my neighborhood, there were two words that you always whispered. If you said somebody was sick, he has cancer. You always whispered cancer as if you said it out loud, you're going to catch it. And the other thing we always whispered was about a person's race, that the person was black. Uh, I never whispered about that, but there was a lot of that going on uh, in my neighborhood. Gay, we didn't even pronounce it, we didn't even mention it. My God, uh, nobody, when I was growing up, even heard of anybody being gay. Uh, obviously, there were gay people all around us, but we didn't know that. So, you know, bigotry can be hidden or overt or somewhere in between. So the question is, how do we deal with these issues of, uh, of race? How do we deal with these issues of religion? How do we deal with any issues that are hot-button issues? Uh, how do we talk about them? How can we talk about them in a way that's reasonable and rational and makes sense and contributes to the dialogue without inflaming people? Uh, my friend and former colleague at Harvard, Randy Kennedy, wrote a great book about that. Uh, I can't even mention the name of the book uh, in my podcast, but it's the word that nobody's allowed to mention. And he wrote a book with that on the cover. Uh, and it's the history of a horrible word. And he went through the whole history. I think he even taught a course on it, if I'm not mistaken, and um, tried to discern times when the word is appropriate, when it's not appropriate. Recently, a professor was suspended, maybe fired, suspended, I know, for using that word um, in describing a case in which that word became very important. Um, I'm reminded, I may have told some of you this, when the Supreme Court considered a very important case, a case called Cohen's versus the United States, in which a young Vietnam War protester uh, walked into court with a jacket in which he spelled out the word F, the draft. And um, the and he was prosecuted for it. And the Chief Justice wrote a letter to the lawyer who was going to argue the case on both sides, saying, lawyers here, we know the word, we've read the briefs, do not utter that word in the sacred and hallowed chambers of the United States Supreme Court. And so the lawyer, I'm told, I wasn't there, the lawyer uh, for the defendant started his argument, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Fuck the draft. There, I've said it, and the pillars haven't crumbled. 
The nation still stands. We can survive it. And he won his case. Um, now, let's assume that the case was a different case. And uh, the person was a Ku Klux Klan member. And he had a jacket which had the other word on it, the what we politely call the N-word on it. And a lawyer went into court and shouted that word. Um, would it be appropriate? Uh, these are very, very, very hard questions. I remember when F. Lee Bailey um, cross-examined uh, Officer Furman in the O.J. Simpson case. He kept emphasizing over and over again, he didn't use the concept N-word, he used the word itself. And he said, how many times have you used the word? And then he said it. How many... What did you say at this time? Did you say at that time? He did it quite deliberately because he had a jury that uh, was largely comprised of, of African Americans and he wanted to get them upset. He wanted to get them mad at Furman. It was risky. They might have gotten mad at him, not Furman. They acquitted, so maybe they got mad at Furman. But these are hard questions. These are hard, hard questions, but we shouldn't avoid them. We have to consider them, and on The Dare Show, every question gets asked. Questions are not ducked. Questions are not evaded, and I'm interested in what your answers might be to these difficult questions. The things we whisper about should be stated uh, openly, and so I welcome your, your comments about them. And speaking of comments, let's get to some of the comments. Let's start with some <laughs> positive ones. Uh, Mr. Dershowitz, I just watched some programs by Dennis Prager, uh, who was also Jewish. Uh, it would be interesting to hear how the two of you together debate topics based on law versus Jewish faith. Abortion, obviously, is one of the topics, but there are others. What is your relationship, if any, to Dennis Prager? Many of you probably know Dennis Prager. He has one of the most popular radio talk shows, and is a brilliant, brilliant guy. We grew up together in Brooklyn. Um, he's a few years uh, younger than me, um, and uh, he's a brilliant, brilliant guy. His brother is a very prominent uh, uh, doctor in New York, who um, uh, very well known, very, very highly regarded family, and a really, really smart guy. We disagree about a lot of things. Um, I don't think uh, Jewish law, Jewish value should play any role. Um, if a Jew wants to obey Jewish law, that's his or her business. But American law should not be based on Christian law, Jewish law, Muslim law. Uh, we all get upset when many people get upset. Oh my God, they're introducing Sharia law. Uh, you know, there's a lot of law today based on uh, uh, Christian law and Jewish law, the Judeo-Christian, the Bible, a lot of laws uh, based on that. Uh, I have another book in my library um, uh, from about the 1700s, uh, which had the laws of Massachusetts. And after each law, there was a biblical site. So when it said murder is punishable by death, Exodus 31, 12, um, you know, uh, adultery is punishable by so-and-so, uh, Leviticus, you know, there used to be a day when uh, all of Anglo-American law was based on biblical law, but our Constitution basically created, for the first time in history, uh, separation between church and state. Interestingly enough, 
was devised by a religious minister, Roger Williams, who talked about the garden and the wilderness. And what do you think the garden was? The garden was the church and the wilderness was the secular world. He didn't want to see the secular world intrude on the religious world, so he wanted to have a strict separation between uh, church and state and the Constitution called the godless Constitution. God is never mentioned in the Constitution. He's mentioned in the Declaration. Of course, you need God to revolt. You can't base a revolution on law, so you need to do natural law or religious law. But once you have a country, you're going to try to have a more conservative constitution, and you don't want people invoking God um, uh, to be able to be lawless. Um, and so uh, the constitution separated church and state. So I would be interested in debating Dennis, and I debate him all the time. He invites me on his show, and I'd be happy to invite him on on my show, once we get the technology to be able to uh, to do that. Um, uh, but we'll disagree uh, about abortion, we'll disagree about gay rights, we'll disagree about a great many of these, uh, of these social uh, issues. Uh, next question. What is your opinion about POTUS, President? Executive agreements, specifically what is a treaty and what is not? Well, I have written a lot about that, and I'm in a minority among academics, but I think I'm right. And that is, if it looks like a treaty, if it quacks like a treaty, if it walks like a treaty, it's a treaty. And a treaty requires a two-thirds vote of the Senate to be confirmed. The president doesn't have the power to make treaties. Before NATO was accepted, we had a two-thirds vote of the Senate. Before um, uh, other countries were accepted into NATO, we had a two-thirds vote. And if uh, Ukraine ever gets accepted, I, I doubt that will happen, it would require a, a, a two-thirds vote. But what about the Iran deal? The Iran deal is a treaty. It involves multiple countries, obligations by each country, consequences for a breach. What's the difference? President Obama called it a deal or an agreement. It's a treaty. Why didn't he want it to be a treaty? Because two-thirds of the Senate would never have ratified it. And I think if we go back into the Iran deal, and if I were one of the senators who was a dissenter, and there are many who are, for example, Ted Cruz doesn't agree with it, if I were he, I would sue in the Supreme Court, ultimately. I would sue to have that uh, deal uh, vacated and to require a two-thirds vote before the United States gets back into what is really a treaty with uh, Iran. Will that work? I doubt it. The Supreme Court would probably duck the issue, but who knows. Um, okay, now we start on some of the nasty. Uh, you know, it's so interesting. Every batch of mail I get, every single batch, I could be talking about chocolate pudding, strawberries, and, uh, and Tom Brady coming back to play for the Bucks, I will get anti-Semitic mail. Somebody will figure out a Jewish angle to come up on. So I'll just always read you a few of those because it's so important to know what lurks beneath the rocks out there. So this is one of the most benign ones. But there's no reason to boycott Israel for its behavior, right, Dershey? You absolutely shameless Jewish supremacist hypocrite! Oh, that's, that, that's, that's nice. Um, another one that goes a little further. Another member of the Khazar tribe. These are part of the standard anti-Semitism is that Jews don't really exist. 
they're really from Khazar, uh, people from the East, the Mongols, and uh, they became what are now called Jews. Another member of the Khazar tribe who has no problem defending the Azov Battalion as long as it serves its purpose. The Azov Battalion is a, a group of very, very right-wing Ukrainians that fought. Um, and then, uh, even better, the guy who finances the Azov Battalion as well as the other openly Nazi militia organizations is Kolomoisky, the official owner of Zelensky, an Israeli double national. Total, complete lie that Zelensky is a a double national that's been circulated around Ukraine, totally false. Is um, also the head of the main community organization of Ukrainians. You see, you get a lot of that, a lot of that. Piss off, Dershowitz, you Nazi. No one has the right to refuse a vaccine, you criminal piece of shit. I hope you're tried and convicted of treason. No, that's not enough for this guy. Next one. Let me read you their names. GR at Freedom Fan, UN Nile. Yeah, he's always been a psychotic slime ball. I just hope when the cancer hits, it's one of those incurable, slow burning types in a sensitive place. Thank you so much. That's so nice of you. Why do you listen to my show? What is wrong with you? I don't want you to listen to my show. I mean, you want to listen? You want to write me this crap? I'll read it and I'll read you your names. And then finally, I'd say we should boycott people who are the best buddies with Epstein and flew on his plane, flew, flew on his plane, not Russians. Well, of course, I flew on his plane along with uh, very prominent uh, academics and scientists. Um, I was his lawyer. and He flew me down on uh, numerous occasions to represent him in, in Florida. Uh, once I did fly on a vacation on his plane with my wife and my daughter. Um, but uh, you'll see that the uh, uh, listing manifest of the plane, I was never on the plane with any uh, young woman or anything like that, and certainly never on the plane with anybody who's ever accused me of anything. But, you know, you can make these, you can make these statements. Uh, help Ukraine with what? Promoting national socialism? Never. It's about time to remove the Nazi schwines from the Ukraine. So, you know. That's what you get, and then you get a couple of nice ones. I don't always agree with you, but I would never send you a hateful message. Keep doing what you're doing. Um, and then finally, this is uh, humorous. This is a pet peeve of mine. My wife hates when I mention it, and I mention it every time CNN mispronounces the name of the capital of Ukraine. Thank you, thank you, thank you about the pronunciation of the Ukrainian capital. It's been driving me crazy that the United States media changed from slightly wrong to worse. Uh, love your mention of the Russian Tea Room, one of the most iconic restaurants in the world. I'm sure you're allowed on the third floor. I don't know. I've never been allowed. I've only been on the, uh, the, the main dining room, and I, I, I love their food. Uh, uh, the reason I mention this is the uniformity of the media. The media has rules, and the media sends memos. In this case, the media has sent memos, particularly CNN, Say Kiev, Kiev, K-E-E-V. That's what you got to say, Kiev. So these robots on CNN, they talk to the mayor of Kiev. And the mayor of Kiev talks about how important it is to help the people of Kiev. And Anderson Cooper says, oh yeah, we'll help the people in Kiev. Thank you, we'll help the people of Kiev. No, 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 please, help the people of Kiev. Yeah, yeah, we'll help the people of Kiev. Kiev, we have to say Kiev.
That's what they've told us to say. We have to say this, that. We have to say this about, you know, CNN sends memos to their people about how to report the news and how to pronounce the news. So be independent. Learn yourself. You know, you can go online. There's a, a thing that says how to pronounce words on Google. So go in and ask, how do you pronounce the capital of Ukraine? And you'll see nobody says Kiev except the media. So that's my rant for the day. Uh, Kiev, Kiev, not Kiev, that's Russian, Kiev. Um, when I was growing up, some of my family came from Lvov, which was the way it was pronounced um, in, in the olden days, uh, a city right on the border of Poland. But now the Ukrainians have changed officially the pronunciation. It's now Lviv. That's okay. That's okay. That's the way the, the, the Ukrainians pronounce it. But CNN has its own pronunciation in complete defiance of what the Ukrainians do. So uh, I've gotten my anger out. My wife will be thrilled. I got it out of my system. I'm not going to talk about it over dinner. So uh, come back tomorrow. Um, more of the Der Show. And please send me your questions, your comments, and your rants. Your rants. I will read you the rants. I think it's so important for people to know that there are people out there who still harbor some of the most despicable and disgusting views about everything. That's America. That's free speech. And on the Der Show, you get to say it. Thanks.